Welcome to the latest Industry Insights podcast. Industry Insights is a reservoir of articles, interviews and other content relating to business, entrepreneurialism, leadership, charity, career pathways and networking. We'll be exploring the many opportunities in building the global integrative medicine community and how you can get involved. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line today is Moira Bradfield, who's a naturopath and acupuncturist with over 15 years clinical experience. Graduating with a Bachelor of Naturopathy from Southern Cross Uni in 2001, Moira has worked as a naturopath in a variety of settings with a wide range of health conditions and disease states. In the pursuit of blending naturopathic medicine with oriental modalities, Moira completed a diploma in traditional Thai massage in 2004 and in 2010 completed a master's degree in acupuncture through Southern Cross Uni. She now incorporates effective oriental protocols into her naturopathic practice. She's travelled to the United Kingdom, Thailand and China as part of her clinical training and interests in oriental health. She has a passion for considering the energetic principles underpinning nutritional interventions in client prescription and aligning treatment approaches with constitutional considerations. That is a tongueful. Moira blends this passion with a solid biochemical and pathological framework to create relevant and effective approaches to health and healing. Moira has a special interest in holistic medical ophthalmology, working in an integrative service which offers acupuncture and naturopathic medicine for people suffering from degenerative eye disorders, something which we've covered previously in FX Medicine. Moira has lectured both overseas and in Australia in nutrition, pharmacology and pathology. And Moira, I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me back. Now, today is part of our series called The Practical Practitioner. Um, we're going to be covering something which we all should know, but I think we need uh, refreshers in about how to take an effective case history. I agree. There seems to be um, a bit of a shift happening in naturopathy and holistic medicine, and we might be losing sight of some of our core principles, but also it comes down to some safety matters as well in case taking. Now, Moira, one of the things that I've always admired about you is that you retain the history and philosophy of natural medicine, but you have an extremely safe and clinical approach to patient health. And I've always really admired that in you. But I think what we're going to be talking about today is how practitioners can maximize both sides, that, that safety and um, you know, new scientific management, if you like, combining that or retaining our roots. Definitely. I mean, we've come a long way in terms of scientific discovery and we have so much information available at our fingertips and we have so much detail now about what's going on on multiple levels from cellular through to organs. And I think what we're doing is sometimes, particularly new graduates, are getting lost in that detail mm. and not being able to see the forest for the trees. You know, it's sometimes stepping back and looking at it and applying some core principles is a very effective way to see where you might navigate through. But also it is important to understand those details as well. We need to have language that gives us understanding of the details so that we can 
function, read research, apply research, but also how does that fit in our framework? What can I achieve in that framework? So when we're talking about modern practice and we're talking about common practices in Australia, you were talking to me just previously about pre-screening, which is something that some practitioners engage in with new patients particularly. So they might send out a questionnaire and say, okay, what are your major symptoms that you will see me about? Tell me about your experiences with that and how you find that works or doesn't work in your practice today. For new practitioners, it's probably an effective tool because it does give them time to prepare for their patients coming in. Um, Personally, I've done away with pre-screening only because I find it interrupts the flow of my consult. And I really enjoy the Sherlock Holmes approach where, you know, I want my brain to fire. I want to be able to have warning signs appear in front of me and to navigate a case where it needs to go for that particular person. So pre-screening is great as collecting. I do find that perhaps patients don't actually comply a lot of the time. And so if you're relying on that as part of your clinical process, you're often chasing emails or patients arrive without anything, and that might also hinder somebody's approach. So certainly, I mean, I think if you can refine a case-taking approach that doesn't require pre-screening but allows time for a patient or client-practitioner relationship to develop and to cover all aspects of that person's health, you're actually going to have better outcomes because it's not then a process of, I'll just look at this paperwork and ask a few key questions. It's about allowing that person to tell their story and certainly their experience of their health matter, whether you're looking at chronology, whether you're looking at what they actually define as the the parts that need focusing on, is part of what shapes your treatment approach as well in naturopathic philosophy. Mm. And of course, a perfect diagnosis, whether that be medical or naturopathic, occurs over time. Um, but one of the things I picked up from a lady who used to mentor naturopathic students, um, and I will give a call out to this lady, Maria Forbes, if she's still practicing, um, I really used to admire her. But she'd take on naturopathic students and say, look, if you if you don't have some inkling, some key as to which way you're going to travel within 15 minutes, start again because you've, you've just gone off on the wrong track. However, you've always got to be open that something might come in later on and, and broad, broad swipe you and say, no, 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 that was totally wrong. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I think we always have to have that in the, the back of our mind that we're not, you know, this isn't. And that's why, you know, it's useful to have a list of differentials, whether they're mainstream or they're naturopathic, you know, um, principles or naturopathic diagnosis, sorry, you know, so that we can go back and review. And there is, I mean, if you exhaust a line of questioning and it doesn't have any substance, it's probably not a priority or it's not the main contributing factor to that person's imbalance in their health. And, And you need to go back and look at it. And when we look at clinical practice, although I do acknowledge it's getting more complex in terms of disease states that we're seeing, The common things are the common things, you know, and the most likely thing that you are seeing a lot of is probably what's sitting in front of you. And we don't need to forget that either. You know, you don't go through, you know, extensive testing or, you know, if it's a simple case of fatigue because somebody isn't sleeping, you know, you have to use your clinical judgment and and not, you know, put people through unnecessary financial testing, for example, which is another one. Yes, Um, bugbear. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, it's probably nothing more than you think it is. And I think there's also that confidence that comes or they need to be instilled with confidence as well about knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know and being safe within that as well. You know, so certainly avenues of co-management and referral are important as well in that context. 
One of the things that I'll always remember from uh, Sister Geddes, I don't know why I remember these people's names, forgive me, <laughs> but um, at uh, Griffith Base Hospital, I was getting caught up in the minute of diagnosis and nursing practice and things like that. And I was really questioning my abilities. And she settled me down. And I told her this and she settled me down. She said, you can know that stuff and that will come with practice. But at the beginning, always look at your patient. Have they got a spark in their eye? Are they in pain? You know, do they wince? Do they walk with a limp? Always observe these these obvious, seemingly obvious signs that we just lose sight of. Yeah, definitely. And they're so important. And, and certainly being a supervisor and observing students, it's how it's amazing how much that goes unnoticed where you know, the, the client will leave the room and I'll say, what's with that cough? And, and yes. they'll look at me and go, what cough? What cough? <laughs> <laughs> that one that was going through the whole consult. Yeah, you know? so yeah. It, it, you know, and, and certainly fear is a big part of that, I imagine. Well, I do know. I was a young graduate once that, you know, it's a very scary thing. But certainly using all of your senses, which is part of your case-taking observation, is a big part of it. Um, you know, it's a really important thing. And to pull it back and to stop getting lost in the fear of what this could be or even, you know, what name it's been given. Um, you know, and you need to understand that person's experience of that particular thing that's going on for them. So let's get into some practicalities. You're sitting down with the patient and we look at, you know, name, address, sex, and then we ask the question, so what brought you in to see me today? What sort of details do we then need to take? I guess you need some sort of system to, because generally they don't just say one thing, there's a number of things, Mm. and you need to get the details of those particular complaints because they're the core things for that person that are they're perceiving as causing their imbalance or being the presentation of their imbalance. So for me, I have a mnemonic that I use, which ensures that I get my details. And certainly over time, that mnemonic becomes second nature and, you know, you don't have to think about it. And there are various ones out there. I I believe they're teaching different ones presently than the ones that we were taught. But they're mnemonics that or a, a process that actually, you know, will get you your symptom, that person's where it is, you know, what else is going on with that particular symptom. Um, does it, if it's a pain, for example, or a symptom, are there any other things or does it radiate? Is it associated with things? Um, and, and what does it feel like? So the person's experience of a particular symptom is really important. Yes. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, because the amount of times, that, again, you know, bringing it back to a student level, they'll say, oh, they've got anxiety. And my question is, and what is their experience of anxiety? And and it really hasn't gone any further mm. than that. You know, not everybody's anxiety is the same, just like not everybody's cough is the same. And if you can get those modalities out of it, you know, what time of the day, what are your triggers, what are your sensations? Do you have flushing, for example, or palpitations, or does it have sweating associated with it? On a holistic level, that sort of detail has meaning for us. You know, it, it directs what sort of treatment plan we put in place. Mm. For me, on a constitutional level, it directs things like whether I'm going in with hot foods, cold foods, you know, whether I want people to put shoes on or not. You know, <laughs> yeah. it can be very practical for a person to get that amount of detail. And it also helps you to understand as well because, you know, even if they come in with a diagnosis, it's not necessarily the right diagnosis, you know, that it can be refined in your understanding of it as well. And, you know, if, say, take it something like anxiety again, you know, is this a specific anxiety associated with something? Is it a generalized one? And has that been diagnosed correctly? Or is it some other external factor that's causing it in terms of 
know, stimulants, caffeine, protein powders, etc., that can all be, you know, drivers of those type of symptoms as well. Yeah. So you and I have discussed previously a couple of the mnemonics that that um, can help you in guiding your your naturopathic diagnosis, and you talk about one called Mark's Draft. Can you yeah. explain that one, please? I can. So anyone that studied with me would know Mark's Draft well. Um, it came from Stephen Myers. So um, we're looking at Mark spelt with a C. So M A R C. S-D-R-A-F-T. Correct. So if we run through that, so the M is for main site. So if we have a symptom, where is that symptom felt mostly? Uh, Then we have association. So are there associated sensations or symptoms with that particular um, presentation? Then we have radiation. So if we're talking particularly about pains, do they travel? Is that symptom got... Is it localized to one place or not? You know, and that gives us certainly a lot of information. And we have character, so what it feels like. Um, is it dull? Is it sharp? Is it stabbing? That type of information, hot, burning, whatever. Um, and severity. So getting people to rate something out of 10 is mm. a really important and practical clinical tool because you can revisit that. And it's amazing because people don't realize that they're improving. But if you go back and get them to rate it and then compare it, you've got a scale that you can work with. Um, where are we up to? D. So then we've got um, duration. So um, the duration of the symptoms. So these timing type questions can be interpreted in a number of levels, but it's all important information. So duration in terms of how long have you had that symptom for, but also if we're looking at duration and it links in with some of our other letters in this part of the mnemonic, um, you know, how long does it last for when you have it? Is it really a quick fleeting thing or does it stick around for 24 hours? Then we have the um, the relieved and aggravated. So what, what's it better for? What's it worse for? What have you tried? What interventions have you had? You know, and down to practical things that people will do like heat packs, cold baths, sleep, you know, pressure, that type of thing will all have impact on uh, symptom and is important useful information. And then the frequency and the timing of the last two in that mnemonic. So the frequency of how frequently are you getting the symptom? And we can look at that in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year. Um, and certainly, again, that's a really important thing for us to go back and revisit because if we're experiencing something less, that's an improvement. Um, and then the timing as well. And again, this can be linked into the D of this part of the mnemonic, but the timing of what time of the day is that coming on? You know, and then the duration of that as well. Yeah. And I often use one which is taught to me called the etiological sieve. And there's several variants of this. Um, so mine is C, and it's the letter C, that Italian vase now has many new dried peas in it. And this is the thing about mnemonics. It's it's ludicrous. It's a ludicrous sentence. And that's what, with a little bit of practice, helps you remember it. Most people will remember the 12 cranial nerves, which we won't be mentioning yeah. in this podcast. <laughs> My brain just did as well. <laughs> yeah. But the, um, it's always rude and therefore you remember it. So the C is congenital, the T is trauma, the I is immune, which is broken up into two parts, infection and inflammation. V is mm-hmm. vascular, neoplastic, hormonal, musculoskeletal, nutritional deficiencies and the interactions there, drugs, psychiatric causes. Then you've got things like iatrogenic, we caused it, 
or idiosyncratic. We have no idea why you've got that. And it just leads you on to a possible cause for those symptoms which you previously described. But let's move on from there. So it took me a while to remember it. And then I went, it's that, it's that vase. It's always that vase. Like, what the heck? But when you can picture it, it sort of aids in it. So yeah, can I ask yeah, just... That's a really just, good outline for the whole case. Can I just ask then, so with Mark's yeah. draft, what was the what was the picture in your mind that helped you remember the the main site, the association? What what was going on? I am very good with closing my eyes and seeing things written on a whiteboard. You're right. <laughs> um, so the, for me, the that's all that needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, is to write something on a whatnot a whiteboard and and as long as I have understanding of it. Yeah. Um, because you know, like the cranial nerves, for example, I have those side of mnemonics as well, which are much more <laughs> abstract from. The Mark Straff, which is just the name, for example. Yeah. But there are mnemonics out there that are not even funny and nonsensical and not even words. Mm. And, and certainly, you know, those sort of things, some people use those and they function fine for them. For me, it has to be, at least be a word and yeah. then I can go from there. And I think, <laughs> I think the thing is, as you say, once it has meaning, so once you go through what are you talking about with the main site and then associate it with the disease process and you can go, right, so, for instance, when you were talking radiation, I was thinking two um, two um, events happening. One was a heart attack and the other one was an, an appendix. And Mark's draft is really effective for pain for that reason because yeah. it's about that particular symptom. Whereas when we step back and look at a symptom that I guess is less specific and more like fatigue, you can use Mark's draft to it, but you also then need to come in and bring in some of what you were talking about as well. And, you know... Case taking is a cycle in that you can't necessarily have understanding of those things unless you understand their context as well and yes. why you are asking questions. And that's also something that I see students struggle with is that they have, say, a systems review, which is where you have each system and then there are the common questions that you would need to elicit alarm symptoms in each of those particular um, systems. If you don't have an understanding about why you're asking that question and what diagnosis that relates to, you can collect that information, but you don't necessarily use it. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's another, you know, that's a huge thing. I mean, why would you get all this random information? Why do we ask you questions about the colour of a poo or whether it floats or sinks or any of those lovely things that we like asking about? <laughs> you don't know what it means. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> and, exactly and, right. You know, and, and not only if you don't know what it means, but in an extreme presentation that it can be quite serious mm. as well. Because you know, that's the difference between a functional disorder and a pathological process in terms of a disease. So in terms of the things that you might be looking at to take down, so the chronology of, of a symptom, um, a, a person's, sorry, a, a, a patient's personal history, their family history, other things that are really important in, in forming a picture in your mind about what might be the causes of their present condition. How do you balance note-taking versus being present? That's a really good question. And part of that is when I look back at my notes, sometimes I'm not that good. <laughs> um, there, there is, I mean, obviously you develop a shorthand that becomes a naturopathic shorthand and that's part of it. And, you know, for me, it's annoying as well about what is you need to be able to identify that is important enough to be written down. And having a good blend of that with also that patient's lived experience, you know, because there are certain phrases that you have to write down in full because the way that a person expresses something to you 
is important for that particular case or that particular presentation as mm. well. So in terms of how I balance it, that's why I don't know if I can answer that question. <laughs> um, I do. I, I'm a, certainly I'm still old school paper and pen. I, I don't necessarily, I think if I had to switch to a computer and type notes, that would, you know, remove me again from mm. that process. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with a pause in case taking to write something down fully. You don't necessarily, it doesn't have to keep up a pace that is out of your control. I mean, ultimately, as a practitioner, you're directing where things go to a certain extent. That's right. Um, and certainly that aspect of stopping and noting and um, even reflecting things back to that patient is a really important process. And and part of that as I go through as well, because there's always things that pop up, but it may not be the point in the case-taking process where you can actually ask that question or reflect back on it. I have a margin in my case notes and I will often just write abbreviations and circle them. Yeah. And it may be an abbreviation that means go back and ask about that or an abbreviation that means that could be a good intervention at that level or it's because I work a lot in oriental diagnosis, that's a particular meridian system that might be indicated. Um, so those sort of things are reflections for me as well. Also, once the patient has left, so one of the things that I do is, um, you know, the case-taking process is an education as it tracks along as well. I mean, you're there answering questions and feeding into this concept of what your understanding of the holism of is as it tracks along. Um, that at the same time when we're getting to a point where I've got a bit of more of an idea about what intervention track we're going to go for, I'll also be writing down a prescription as well. Um, so when we get to the end and I present that back to the patient about, you know, is this achievable and what do you think about that intervention? Are there thing, aspects of that you don't think you're going to be able to achieve? How can we fix that, et cetera? Um, I've already tracked and, and planted in the reasons why we might be doing things as we track along with the case-taking process. And then when the patient's left, I also then will write usually a paragraph at the end of my case-taking yes. about, you know, it's a holistic analysis about what I think is going on, what I want to do in the future, what things I need to be monitoring in terms of, you know, if I've got differentials in the back of my mind that I don't think they're strong, but I want to watch out for them, yep. I'll pop them there and any other follow-up that's required as well. So, you know, and that doesn't take a long period of time. That's a, literally a five-minute sit-down and do it. But it's an important five minutes because the next time I pick up that file, when you have a lot of patients, um, sadly some of them you don't remember, mm. um, you know, you'll pick up the file and I think, oh, that's right, that's what's going on there, that's what's going on for that person and you can continue on with your care from there. I think um, you made that point about having a margin in your notes and I think that's really important, particularly when you're questioning your patients regarding the chronology of events because I almost always find that at some point one of their events is out of whack <laughs> at least one. Some of sometimes a whole plethora of them are out of chronological um, uh, timeline. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's probably good to go back and just number them one, five, two, three, four, and that might give you a, an extra link to be able to summarise later. But I like your yeah. point at the end of the day, or sorry, at the end of the patient's visit, just having that time to sit down and summarise, just say, remember this, and just be aware of that. Not worried about this, but. Good point, Tor. Yeah. So when you're talking about taking good notes, obviously you start off with more general type questions and then you form a picture in your mind and you're, you're you know, like a dog on the scent and you tend to hone in on things. But I think mm -hmm. it's always mindful to, to be open to 
as I said before, something might come in broadside and you go, hang on, that's different. So how do you allow yourself to hone in and be aware at the same time? Um, I guess there's two different processes that are occurring sometimes simultaneously. Um, and, and one of those is that, you know, in terms of my safety as a practitioner, I am purposely asking specific questions to rule out pathology yep. um, so that I know that I'm functioning within my capacity to help this particular person. So I have that aspect going on, you know, that I'm asking specific questions that I really want to know to um, <laughs> so that I can, you know, wipe that off my differential mm. and continue on. And then I have the other aspect of that is that asking those questions of people often trigger responses that you're not expecting, as you're saying, and then that also opens up to a little bit of their storytelling as well, which is all really quite relevant and important when you're looking about, you know, what's going on in terms of causation and how, what sort of things in terms of therapeutic order, if we're looking at naturopathic therapeutic order, what has established the conditions for that person's state of health at that point as well. So it sort of is a bit more of an organic thing with me in that it comes out of my questioning, which seems at times a little bit dry. But you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, I've got a sometimes a dark sense of humour. And, and that's not something that necessarily I hide in my consultations at all. You know, you get me, that's me as a practitioner. Um, and so if people are relating to that, well, we tend to have a jolly conversation as we kick along. Um, and that often is, you know, is making people comfortable too, letting you know little details that they didn't think, you know, were important at that point. When they've seen other health practitioners, they didn't realize that we're looking at a whole picture health and that every detail is important. Mm. Um, and I will say probably Indeed. before I sit down, well, when we sit down initially and we go through the easy stuff like what's your name and your address, I also give a brief synopsis of what I'm going to do. And I do preface that with I'm going to ask a lot of random questions. And you might not understand the relevance for all those questions, but for me, they give me a, an overview of everything that's going on in your body and how they're interacting with each other. And that helps me to establish what's actually going on with your health and how you got there, you know. And that's a really that's a really good point, Moira, an an exceptionally good point. An introduction of you to that patient. This is what I'm about. That's definitely yeah. We lose we lose sight of that seriously. (laughs) Definitely, you know. And and I will spend an hour, maybe sometimes an hour and a half, in bigger cases with people. Um, you know, from start to finish. And, you know, if they're expecting to sit down for me to look at the computer screen and to be out the door in 15 minutes, it's not going to happen. Mm. Um, you know, so it needs to be introduced that there's going to be a lot of questioning. I also give them the opportunity, if they're not comfortable answering something, don't answer it, mm. you know, and just let me know. Or if you think of something else that I haven't asked about, let me know about that as well because it's all relevant because that's that person's perception of their health story yeah. as well. But uh, um, what I was trying to make the point about before is that we go on along our merry way, just day-to-day practice, and we just lose sight that they're brand new or maybe brand new yeah. to this. And they're certainly brand new to you. Um, and it's really important to say these very basic things. You know, Definitely. Um, I, I always remember admitting people to hospital and you always just have to go through the very basic things about what they're, why they're here and that sort of thing, what their expectations are. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, even though they've booked an appointment with you, whatever practitioner you are, doesn't necessarily mean they know what that's about. I mean, I know the first time I went and saw a naturopath, I don't think I had an understanding of what they did. Mm. You know, and I always just wanted some sort of natural health approach to my, my life mm. and, and, you know, 
obviously what I got, I was impressed with because yes. I went forth and studied it. Um, <laughs> and but, studied you know, it well. You need to, <laughs> just because they've rung and made an appointment with you doesn't know, mean that they know what you'll do at all. Mm, mm. So you mentioned before about um, questioning, uh, lines of questioning to look for red flags. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you know, there's obvious red flags, you know, they're sweating and they've got a bounding pulse and they've got pain, radiating pain from their, um, on their left side. Um, yeah. and you just call an ambulance straight away, but there's other more insidious red flags that we've got to be aware of. Can you go through a few Definitely. of those? Well, I mean, the most insidious and the most common one would have to be fatigue, um, you know, but it's the occurrence of these symptoms with other insidious symptoms yes. is where we generally have to start worrying. So, you know, certainly, um, you know, weight loss, sweating, um, you know, temperature dysregulation issues with fatigue, um, all of those things like fever as well um, in there because we look sorry, lumps, yeah, lumps and bumps, changes to bowel habits. Bleeding um, is a big one, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and then if you're going, I mean, for every system, there are red flags. So if yeah. when you're going to GIT, for example, changes to stool, mucus, blood, color of stool, um, you know, vomiting of coffee grounds, that type of thing that lets you know this is a super acute situation I need to refer. Yeah. Or even, you know, if you're looking at things like the leukemias, for example, which can be great masqueraders of as nothingness. Um, you know, that you have to look at, you know, this is fatigue. Has there been night sweats? Is there That's some right. weight loss? Is there lymphadenopathy? That type of thing. So that you can be confident that, you know, yes, I can go forth with some sort of maybe adrenal adaptogen, um, you know, approach. Or no, this person needs to go get a blood test. Yeah. You know, because again, like I said, you don't need to test everybody for everything, but you need to rule out things that are, you know, worrying and alarming in your patients. And so when you're talking about referring, uh, more often than not during somebody's uh, career, they're going to have to be corresponding with local uh, medical practitioners. So mm-hmm. what sort of things, what sort of hints and tips can you give to our listeners with regards to how to correspond with medical practitioners who more often than not won't necessarily agree with naturopathy as a treatment regime? Yeah, I, I keep it simple is my biggest tip. So, and everyone will have a different approach to referral writing. My approach is as more of, you know, on the diagnostic level is that I'm not telling this person how to do their job. They should have those skills. Yeah. Um, so my letters are brief. They are, I've seen this patient on this date. They presented with these main complaints on uh, analysis. These symptoms came up, physical exam elicited this. I refer to you for further investigations um, and would appreciate copies of your results in the co-management of this patient. Mm. And as simple as that. And if you know, if the doctor is good at their job, listing those symptoms, like it does in my brain, <laughs> should go, well, oh, that's a differential. That's what needs to be ruled out. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that we need to dictate to other medical professionals how to do their job. And certainly, you know, I, I, I know my job inside out they should know theirs and they certainly know when we have issues with Medicare in this country, for example, what they can and can't order. And while I have some understanding of that, for example, you know, I don't refer for vitamin D, I don't refer for iodine, 
Um, you know, I don't always refer for full thyroid panels if I think that they're required because I know that the answer is going to be no hmm. because their hands are tied in that regard as well. Um, you know, and I don't refer for all those. I've seen referrals from um, practitioners for, you know, magnesium and zinc and all of these things on blood. And yeah, I was like, well, no GPs do that, no. you know, and why are you even asking? And I can see where that sentiment's come from in the population. Um, and there has been a recent, obviously, new, a news article about that, I believe, Um Whereas say no to naturopaths, you mm. know, don't accept their referrals, and I can see why because mm. there's crazy stuff going on, yes. and it's not realistic. I, I think we need all. to give respect to the restrictions that are placed on general practitioners, not just um, you know uh, by the wave of the wand saying no, you can't do this as a screening method, but also their responsibility for care um, mm. is is not to over treat. And uh, or over investigate indeed. So um, you know when you see this this whole bank of tests again, to me it smacks of fear or a lack of confidence in what you think you're doing. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And what do you do with those results when you get them? Does it change your treatment? Well, this is a, a big thing, it isn't doesn't. it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and a lot of the time, I mean, yes, I want to see antibodies, for example, if we go to something like thyroid. And I want to see that they're tracking down. And I usually want to see a vitamin D level because that informs how much I will go in with. Mm. But a lot of the other stuff, if it's super functional, I don't necessarily need the results to see the results, <laughs> if you get what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and that's why. I mean, that point of referral for me is because I can't name a disease in my clinical practice like they can, and I want them to investigate it because it could be life-threatening for this patient if the right intervention isn't given. Yeah. And even if the patient comes back to me with a name, it then will, I mean, not doesn't necessarily change everything I do, but it might direct some of my treatment in a slightly different way, and it gives me more safety parameters to work within as well in terms of rechecking on a pathology, um, you know, assessing, you know, things like CRP, for example, in, in inflammatory bowel disease, that type of thing are the markers I need to know that I need to look out for. Um, and so sometimes I need the name of the disease and, and that's also why I'll be, you know, cross-ferring and co-managing. But I, I think, and this comes into how we can retain the elegance of natural medicine. And to me, it is ele an elegance and you can call it oversimplification if you were a medical practitioner, I guess. But to me, it's that elegance of natural medicine that we are not treating that necessary or not necessarily treating that diagnostic the we are not necessarily treating that medical diagnosis of a disease, but we are supporting the patient, their bodily yeah, symptoms. Definitely. And I think we're, we're losing sight of that as natural, natural medicine practitioners. If you want to be a doctor, be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be yeah. a good naturopath, then be a naturopath and support the patient. Yeah. I mean, one of my colleagues here calls that green allopathy. And it's very true. It's very easy to go, this is you know, the herb or the nutrient for that disease. Mm. But I don't think that that leads to cure, you know, or to health and well-being. And when we look at the naturopathic therapeutic order, you know, addressing pathology is way down on the list. Yeah. You know, all of those other things like addressing the determinants, you know, looking at the environment and the, the disturbing factors and, you know, stimulating the body's own healing force and tonifying anything that's weak or correcting anything that's structurally impaired, that's much higher up than going in, that's the pathology, that's mm. what I need to address. Mm. And if you can understand a pathological process, you can integrate that into all of those other parts from the therapeutic order, and the pathology starts to correct itself anyway.
any in a very acute situation would you go in with an acute inter, inter you know acute treatment on a pathology level yeah but you would still address those other determinants. And likewise, Moira, when you said, and it doesn't necessarily need to cure, I think that word cure is used way out of context. Um, and okay. perhaps we should be looking at support, um, nourishment. You know, they might seem like wishy-washy terms, but they're actually what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know? And, you know, when you look at the continuum of health, is anyone healthy? I mean, <laughs> and, and what is cure and what are we trying to yes. eliminate? Um, you know, and there's all of those sort of questions. And and can you be healthy in today's environment? I mean, there's different gradients of health, I guess. And you know, I can't necessarily eliminate the environmental toxic exposure that I come into contact with, or other aspects of my life that are there. But I can certainly work around them and have strategies to minimise their impact on my body. And you know, that's what we're working with. We've got a huge chronic disease burden. I don't think it's going to get smaller anytime soon unless people start looking at the conditions for health within that environment. You know, what is a more healthful regime within that landscape? You know, what can this person do with their stress, with their time, um, with their food preparation, for example? Mm. You know, how many people are too busy to eat properly? Mm. And yet there's all this convenience around us. You can manipulate that to be healthy. Um, you know, and, and part of your role as a practitioner is to work with that. What are this person's barriers to achieving that in what they have available to them? Because you can't necessarily change a job straight away and you can't certainly can't get rid of children, you know, and all of those things are chronic stresses and time-sucking things yes. in our lives yes. that we have to work with. And you can't say, oh, when that disappears, I'll be better. You have to do it now, you know, because that could go on for a while. Just before we wrap up, Moira, we've spoken about mm-hmm. looking after your patients and, and being safe and effective in their care. But I think part of the the problem that people undertake, certainly as we start out, is you go in with all this enthusiasm, but you don't necessarily look after yourself. And uh, yeah. so what do you do to look after yourself, particularly when you're confronting you know, sometimes quite devastating and sad conditions um, that you may or may not have a huge impact on. Um, how do you how do you take care of Moira? Um, sometimes I'm not that good at it. <laughs> Most of the time I am, um, and I mean I have some rules. I try not to take work home with me, um, and I'm much better now at that than I have been in the past. So mm. I, you know, once I've finished work, that's it for the day. And also I've set boundaries about what are work days and what aren't work days. You know, there's a tendency, I guess, as a new practitioner to say yes to everything and to work hours that suit patients rather than you. And long term, I don't think that's achievable. So I've got that in play. I also, you know, when we look at what's going on, the nature deficit disorder is, you know, huge, pretty big. (laughs) Um, And so I certainly look at that because I know when I'm outside, I feel better. And when I can, um, you know, stand up on a hill and look out at a vista, that's life enriching for me. So I try and participate in those type of activities. Even it's just a walk at the beach or a visit to the park or sitting on the deck. Um, You know, those type of activities are a big part of self-care. I am time poor, like everybody, and so I've got strategies in play, say, in my life with food that make things easier and ensure I get nutritious food into me. You know, I have appliances that make life easier. Um, I have recipes that are quick and easy. Um, 
you know, I have backup plans <laughs> in case they don't work as well. So that aspect of it, um, I'm getting much, much better at. And then it's about recognizing when I'm going down. You know, I'm, I have a tendency to fatigue like many people. Um, and if I'm getting there, I need to moderate. I need to go to bed earlier. I need to perhaps pick up you know, a supplement or a herbal mix for a period of time until I start feeling better. And it's about making sure I take the time to self-care because certainly I can have all this knowledge about how other people's lives should be working. And if I don't apply it to myself, I'm not good for anybody. Um, so those are things that I guess I put into play in my life and enjoying, you know, family time and hobbies those type of things. Moira, there's a few texts written by Australian practitioners um, that cover things like, um, you know, nutritional interventions, how to run a practice, that sort of thing. The first one that springs to mind is Herbs and Natural Supplements, um, the fourth edition set, which is two volumes and um, by Braun and Cohen. So um, Leslie Braun and Mark Cohen. The first volume of that set goes through some of the acronyms that we've spoken about previously, some of the choices that you can make in management, but there are others. One's written, I think, by uh, Jerome Saras. He's um, one of the authors, and there's another one with, or maybe that's the same one with John Wardle. Is there any that spring to mind that you might recommend for practitioners so that they can get a handle on how to accomplish good, safe practice? I think you've covered them. Um, There is one other one, which is I guess, I mean, it's got aspects of practice in it and certainly some clinical pearls about the case-taking process and the interactions, and it's called The Energetics of Medicine. The Energetics Um, of Medicine. And I can't give you an author. Um, But it it is nice in that it gives us some of those assessments, and because I'm quite big on constitutional analysis, it's about, you know, the tone of somebody's voice and what that can indicate and how someone is sitting, the eye contact that they give to you. And it runs you through those and looks at them from, say, an Ayurvedic perspective, a Chinese medicine perspective, even some aspects of humoral um, medicine in there as well. So it's still practical um, and, and fantastic, but it's that aspect of it. And then there are some really good um, textbooks out there which are more for nurses and chiropractors, but are their differential diagnosis texts with flowcharts. Yep. And, and and for me, I mean, apart from everything we've talked about, about the process, that is one aspect that needs to be really refined within um, our profession if we're going to have longevity is that we need to be safe yes. within what medicine is offering today. Um, you know, it's, you can't just give echinacea and and not investigate things fully. So, you know, that sort of type of textbook for me is a really a, a must as well, a good differential yep. um, diagnosis. And there are some web resources, the Calgary Guide to Disease. I don't know if you've been on there. Um, it's quite an amazing resource. It's not complete, but it's there and it has flow charts that give us the clinical presentations and it also gives us the pathophysiology on the cellular level of what's going on in different disease processes. So that's quite nice to look at that and we get down to things like interleukin or cytokines, etc. And then you can match that with what you understand is going on with other systems and match that with an intervention. You know, so that sort of um, detail I quite like as a practitioner as well. So we might put the details of these books and uh, other resources up on the fxmedicine.com.au website. Um, I think the book you're talking about, if I've looked it up correctly, is The Energetics of Health by Ivor Lloyd. Is that correct? Got That's cog- the one. Yeah. Got cogs on the front. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> 
Moira, I thank you so much for taking us through, you know, how to practice good medicine and how to actually take those notes so that you are setting yourself up to be able to give the most effective care to your patients. Um, and as I said before, I really do admire you as a good clinical naturopath with giving good naturopathic principles, not trying to be a little doctor. You're, you know, um, I really admire I that. About I am. You. Yeah. <laughs> no, you do well. Thank well you done. very much. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Andrew. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can find more Industry Insights podcasts and resources under the Community tab on the FX Medicine website.